Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is Wednesday um, on a week in which I feel grateful that we have a shortened week and we are joined by our, our good friend James Homan, a columnist for the Washington Post. Welcome back to the, the podcast, James. Wonderful to be with you, Charlie. So, you know, I, I think the first time we, we talked, you were still getting up at like, you know, 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning to do the the Daily 202. Now you have a much more civilized lifestyle now that you're a, a, a regular columnist. Yeah, it really is a, a wonderful change in lifestyle. I work normal hours and instead of burning the midnight oil, I can go out and actually do more reporting, which is nice. Well, and, and also you don't need to have an opinion on everything every single day. It's true, yeah, which does help. It is it is nice sometimes to wake up and say, I, I don't have an opinion today, so I will withhold my excellence. You know, th- 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 this was one thing I, I tried to explain to people when I, when I left doing a, a daily radio show. The relief of not having to have an opinion on everything every single day, it was incredibly liberating to be able to get up and go, huh, that's interesting. I don't know what I think about that. Maybe I will spend more time thinking about it. <laughs> <So> exactly. <laughs> we have that. Well, let's do all of this. I still want to talk about the the gun issue. I want to talk about Joe Biden. I want to talk about your recent piece about the possible end of the Bush dynasty. But but let's start with this story, the, the humiliation of John Durham. I'm guessing that a lot of our listeners really were not paying as much attention as much of the right-wing media was to this trial of an attorney. His name is Michael Sussman. And really what it came down to was that Michael Sussman was accused of making a false statement to the FBI by not disclosing the fact that he was representing the Clinton campaign. Well, just give me your take on this whole case, because if if you're a reader of the Wall Street Journal editorial page, this was the trial of the century. This was the ultimate case that was going to expose the Russia hoax, the deep state and it ends up being an absolute face plant by uh, John Durham, the special counsel appointed right before the election by William Barr. It's his first and really only trial and kind of a spectacular failure. Your, your it thoughts, is a spectacular yeah. failure. Yeah, Charlie, it, it really, it does show that there wasn't a lot of there there. You know, there was some sketchiness mm-hmm. and some kind of skeezy campaign behavior uh, that you see in presidential campaigns, you know, the making of the sausage, that sort yeah. of thing. But this was the strongest case that John Durham could bring uh, with all the resources of the Justice Department at his disposal. And, you know, they ended up just bringing a false statements charge, which, you know, as, as listeners do know from Michael Flynn and a lot of the Mueller probe, that is really the easiest charge to end up bringing. And they couldn't make it stick. And in fact, uh, the jury was unanimous yeah. in voting that this lawyer, Michael Sussman, was was not guilty. And based on what the jurors were telling reporters afterwards yesterday, it was pretty striking because, uh, you know, essentially the, the defense was able to successfully argue that it was not in the Clinton campaign's interest and that the Clinton campaign didn't authorize this lawyer uh, to go to the FBI and tip them off because it actually would have delayed publication of the New York Times story that, uh, Eric Lichtblau was working on. And basically, this guy went, who had been in government, went and tipped off the FBI. Hey, you should know there's this suspicious server traffic. And the New York Times is working on a story about it. And so the, the prosecution was trying to say, hey, he was playing both sides. And he was trying to get it so that the, you know, the FBI would 
look into this. And then the New York Times would report that the FBI was looking into it and, you know, that kind of thing. But the sure. Robbie Mook, the Clinton campaign yeah. manager, right, it was skeezy. Yeah. The, the, but Robbie Mook, the Clinton campaign manager, testified that, like, no, that's not actually what they wanted. And they didn't trust the FBI and they didn't want to go to the FBI. And so all in all, skeezy stuff, but, uh, you know, not a felony. And, and slam dunked by the jury. Exactly. I mean, they, they, they took just a, a few hours to unanimously decide to throw it out. And and uh, at least some of the quotes that I've seen would suggest that they didn't even think that the charge should have been brought. So, I mean, they they basically thought this was nothing about nothing. Exactly. Yeah. And, it, you know, I think that there's one more case that's in the pipeline from Durham about like a researcher on the that steel dossier. Yeah. But my understanding is that it's also a, a relatively weak case. And it will be interesting to see if this rejection by the jury prompts the Durham team to rethink that. Yeah, you would think just to give a little bit of background. I mean, this was supposed this uh, this tip that Sussman brought to the FBI was the allegation that there was some kind of a secret communications channel between the Trump organization and this server at Russia's Alpha Bank. Um, we, look, I have no idea, you know, what the, that was certainly never been proven or determined what what the pinging was back and, and forth. But the only thing that they had was this, uh, this who are you representing? And, you know, it is interesting, the disproportion between the coverage. I mean, th- this is another example, by the way, of sort of the alternative realities we live in, that if you watched Fox News, if you watched Sean Hannity or or read much of the right-wing media, this was a very, very big deal. Outside of that, most people who are listening to us right now are probably scratching their heads going, yeah, I kind of heard about that. What was that all about? Totally. And of course, there's a lot of spin now that, well, this is, you know, the the Washington, D.C. juries. They protect the swamp. They protect their own. But uh, I think it's pretty obvious that this is a case that just didn't hold up and that the testimony just did not support it. So, as you you know, raise the question, what happens now? Does Durham keep plugging away, trying to prove that the sort of the lie that the Russia thing was a big hoax? Now, as, as I understand it, James, the Alpha Bank story was very much a sideshow. It, it was never right. part of the Mueller report. I mean, it really had nothing to do with the Mueller report. So the, 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 the way in which they were trying to build this up is somehow this was going to prove that Hillary was behind the Russia hoax. In reality, it, it, in retrospect, it, it doesn't seem to have played much of a role at all. It wasn't central to the Mueller probe, and it also doesn't undercut the core facts of the contact that was going on between Paul Manafort, who was Trump's campaign chairman, and Konstantin Kalimnik, who was connected to Russian intelligence, passing along internal Trump campaign polling, all the various meetings that we know took place, various efforts by the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg to help Trump, the hacking of Hillary's email, the you know Hillary Clinton campaign, John Podesta emails uh, that were then given to WikiLeaks. All of that has nothing to do with the Alpha Bank sideshow. And you know whatever that was six years ago. And I think I- I'm ready to move past the 2016 campaign. I'm ready to move past <laughs> the. Tr- I, know, I know you're ready to move past the 2020 campaign, yeah. and you know talk about the future. But this is one of those things where I you're absolutely right that if you were in this alternative media universe in the the fever swamps, you would believe that this was the trial of the century. And it just wasn't. And it it was interesting to read the the next day coverage, you know, the Wall Street Journal editorial board contorting itself into pretzels to try to explain, as you said, this is a DC jury and, uh, and all that. 
So uh, speaking of, of relitigating, I mean, a lot, I, look, I think most people want to move past these elections. Donald Trump does not, however. I mean, this, this, <laughs> right. is, this is very clear. That this is his obsession. But I thought one of the more undercovered stories of the day yesterday was uh, the fact that the Trump campaign, Trump campaign, one of their super PACs, blasted out a story suggesting that the Georgia primary was corrupt. Uh, you saw that, of course. I mean, this is this is the Georgia primary where the Trump endorsed candidates were absolutely shellacked. I mean, this was a this was a full on, you know, ass whooping uh, where, you know, Governor Brian Kemp beat Trump's candidate, Purdue, by more than 50 points. I mean, just, just amazing stuff. Candidate for attorney general went down in flames. Even Brad Raffensperger, against all odds, was reelected. So Trump pushes out a story by a conspiracy theorist, Emerald Robinson, who basically thinks there's something, something not right about these Georgia results. Nobody gets these kinds of numbers running against Donald Trump. And Emerald Robinson, for people who had forgotten about this, was too loony for Newsmax. I mean, this is somebody, this is somebody who's on the woolly, woolly edge of wooliness. <laughs> yeah, it was a 52 point, you know, Brian Kemp won by 52 points in that primary. And and it is, you know, it's not just that press release that you noted that, that did go out. It wasn't even a super PAC. It was Trump's PAC. Trump sent it out. And then on at his rally in Wyoming over the weekend, Trump was also saying, we actually really won in Georgia, uh, if you look at it closely. And, you know, he was emphasizing some of his down-ballot endorsements, but was also trying to suggest that there was something nefarious. And we're seeing it in Pennsylvania, yeah, Right, too. I was going to go there. <laughs> yeah, Trump has, has publicly called on Dr. Oz to just declare victory and ignore the recount and act like it's a, a fait accompli. And, and so this is a live issue and it is important to talk about because it does show that democracy continues to be in jeopardy. And we can't count on the elites. We can't count on nope. special prosecutors. Nope. We ultimately, this comes down to the people uh, having to protect democracy. And that's why it was like, I was I actually found myself euphoric <laughs> last week when when Brad Raffensperger and Brian Kemp oh, yeah. were able to to avoid runoffs and win those primaries because it is just it's a heartening reminder that a lot of people have bought into these election lies and it is really tragic but most people at heart don't don't buy it. Well, that's right and that was the indication that that you know that you can break through this. You can stand up against it and survive, which is extraordinary. Now a lot of other people aren't going to, you know, won't have that luck. I don't know that Liz Cheney is going to survive. At least she can sleep at night, look at herself in the mirror, but uh, it it is tough. But I guess that the press release reason I'm bringing it up is because, you know, we're talking about relitigating 2016 and 2020. Trump is making it clear that this is the new reality. And going forward, you wonder whether or not we have entered an era in which uh, Donald Trump and his supporters will never acknowledge defeat. And, and I know that sounds paranoid, but, you know, clearly when you lose by 50 points, and you go, hmm, I don't know, maybe we won. Then then there's no result that is, tr you know, proofed against the, the, the Trumpian big lie. I mean, this is this is how it, it metastasizes. It, it is how it metastasizes. And ultimately, this matters because it just it undercuts public confidence in the legitimacy of our elections. And it is really bad when a big swath of the country doesn't accept who the rightful winner of an election is. And playing these games for, you know, for Trump, it's a game to save face and avoid humiliation or to downplay humiliation or muddy the waters or whatever. But it ends up mattering because 
it just undercuts public confidence yeah. that, that this is a democracy. And then it makes it that much harder to do big things, you know, when the country's under attack, when we're facing the next pandemic or whatever, what have you, it just, it robs the democratically elected government of its legitimacy. Yeah. And, and I, look, I, I don't, I don't think I'm going out on a limb to say that, you know, that if, uh, that if Donald Trump runs again, it is a foregone conclusion that he will not concede defeat, that he will not recognize a defeat, no matter how big it is. I mean, I think that's one of the interesting things about Georgia. No matter how big the defeat is, he will not acknowledge it. Now, my question, though, is whether or not the waters have become so muddied, whether it has become so polarized that any political party is willing to acknowledge, you know, defeat at the presidential election. But I, I, I don't know. I mean, 20 for people who thought that 2021 was uh, was messy in the wake, uh, 2025, I think, is going to be lit as uh, as well. And I totally agree. I, I mean, I, I was pleased that, you know, the, the Virginia governor's race was close ish. Yeah. It wasn't, you know, mm-hmm. that close, two points or whatever. But Democrats conceded. Right Obviously, you didn't hear people saying <laughs> anything about bad ballots in that case on, on the right. Um, I am hopeful, Charlie, that the fact that Trump is doing what you're talking about and sharing this Emerald Robinson story and claiming that a 52 point loss was actually somehow a win does make it that much harder for people to play footsie with the big lie. Mm. And remember, this isn't this wasn't new with Trump in 2016. He lost the Iowa caucuses to Ted Cruz and claimed that he won them. And, you know, he wouldn't commit in 2016 or in 2020 before the election to, to respect the winner. And, and people do know better. Certainly most elected Republican leaders know that this is just preposterous. They play along, which is dangerous and risky for the reasons we were just talking about. But the more that he does this crying wolf thing, the less hopefully that it matters, you know, and I, I, well, uh, we'll see. Well, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel like we've been here before. We go, okay, well, that's going too far. People, surely people will look at this and go, I'm sorry, I can't go along with that, sir. Um, and then they, and then they do. So it, the Pennsylvania, you mentioned this before. So we have this recount in Pennsylvania and it is razor thin between David McCormick and, and Dr. Oz. And uh, Dr. Oz is ahead by a few hundred votes. Uh, so he has the, the poll position. Donald Trump was urging Oz, you know, j- just declare victory which he's kind of done at this point, it does raise the question. Again, this is speculative, but all of the indicators suggest that this is going to be a big Republican year, you know, including in in places like like Pennsylvania. But of course, there's always the potential of blowing it. It occurs to me that that if McCormick wins that recount, it's a live question whether or not Trump will acknowledge it or whether he will tear apart the, the Pennsylvania Republican Party because oh, look, you know, Dr. Oz was ahead and they didn't stop counting the ballots and something stinks in Pennsylvania. I mean, if he's willing to raise questions about Georgia, you know, where, where it's a 50-point margin, what is he going to do in Pennsylvania where it may be decided by a few hundred votes? Yeah. Is that going to impact turnout? Sure. Republicans have all too often over the years proved themselves capable of uh, pulling defeat from the jaws <laughs> of victory. <laughs> and you you look at a bunch of places, you know, in Arizona, this could also play out right. uh, where you Very have some so. of these competitive primaries and Trump could just take his ball and go home. And like I, I've written, I wrote a column recently calling out and criticizing the Democratic Attorney General in Pennsylvania, Josh Shapiro, for running TV ads to help mm-hmm. Doug Mastriano win the Republican primary for governor because the Republican governor gets to 
you know, pick the Secretary of State in Pennsylvania. And, and in fact, the Democrats were the biggest spenders for ads to help this guy who was organizing buses to the Capitol on January 6th. And I just think it's so irresponsible. If you actually believe, as I do, and you do, that democracy is in jeopardy and we're facing this grave danger to run television commercials promoting these people to win primaries in an environment where, you know, anyone with an R after their name could very well win. Exactly. Uh, Especially in a state like Pennsylvania, you know, even in in Illinois, the Democratic governor, J.B. Pritzker, is running TV ads to promote the kind of the fringe candidate over the mainstream candidate. In Nevada, Democrats are running ads to help the insurrectionist secretary of state candidate over the, the kind of the serious minded Republican. And it's just, it galls me because we are in this vulnerable, fragile state. And I just don't think this is the time to be playing these kinds of games. No, I, I completely agree with you. Okay, so let, let's switch gears a little bit and um, and talk about the latest developments in Evaldi, Texas. And there's a lot of things we could talk about here, but I want to focus on one thing because I know that you have been commenting on it. The behavior of the police department uh, and the way this story is playing out, uh, the misinformation, the disinformation that we got, the failure to go in. And yesterday we got reports that the departments are withholding their cooperation from some of the investigation. I mean, this is this is one of the low points for uh, law enforcement. I mean, then there have been many low points, but this strikes me as uh, one of the worst moments. And the lack of transparency is really breathtaking. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, so having covered uh, an unfortunate number of these mass shootings, oftentimes the preliminary information does turn out to be wrong. It's yes. fluid, right. there's conflicting accounts, there's you know, fragmentary information. And so it, it's really challenging as a reporter when you're covering something like this because new information comes out. So you have to anticipate some of that, but this is not that at all. It does seem now like law enforcement officials lying knowingly about what happened to try to cover themselves for what was really a cowardly dereliction of duty uh, of not going into the school and then trying to blame a teacher for propping a door open, trying to paint themselves as the victims. You know, the, these law enforcement officials have said, Oh, it's hard for us to sleep at night because this has just been so hard. And it's, you know, the, the way that a a mom and dad were tased and handcuffed to, to be blocked from going in to save their kids. It just, it makes the blood boil. And I'm really glad uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland announced on Sunday that there will be an independent federal investigation into what happened. And uh, the, the reality is that it's exceedingly difficult, if not impossible, to prosecute a police officer for not right. doing something. You know, that if you call 911 and someone doesn't come, you obviously can't prosecute. Right. They did get the school resource officer in Parkland, Florida in 2017 who you know, ran out of the building as the shooter was running in, mm. he, he was successfully prosecuted. But it's so it's it's unfortunate uh, that, you know, I'm sure the lawyers for the the Uvalde local police and the school district police have told them you shouldn't talk because you are in some legal jeopardy. The sad reality is that these cases are are virtually impossible to, to make beyond simply criminal charges, of course, you could simply, you know, you could make sure that they were fired and don't work in law enforcement right. again. 
This is one of the things that frustrates me most about these shootings is that it feels like this groundhog day, this cut and paste of the various uh, talking points, no matter how tired, no matter how discredited they are. This strikes me as just another one of the the cases where, you know, one of the, uh, you know, go-to talking points about the good guys with the guns has been absolutely shredded. And yet this is what we're hearing from a lot of the opponents of gun safety measures that, okay, what we need to do is uh, beef up school security, uh, you know, turn them into basically locked fortresses, you know, have more cops there. But the reality is that unless we're prepared to turn America into Alcatraz, unless we're prepared to, uh, you know, put body armor on children, you know, and to to basically up armor, you know, churches and synagogues and Walmarts and and nightclubs and bars and, uh, you know, truck stops, uh, all of those places, we're not going to stop this. And and this, this, this idea somehow that you can come up with the perfect defense um, that, you know, you just have one locked door as if that's the answer or give handguns to, you know, your geography teacher and expect them somehow to do what a security guard in Buffalo was not able to do. And yet this passes for acceptable discourse on this on this issue. It's sad. And it, it it's really sad. And you're right. If you up armor some things, you can't up armor everything. You know, in Israel, you can safeguard the shopping mall, but you get the the people leaving the shopping mall and the crossing walk across the street. You know, it, it it's terrible and it does feel like deja vu and groundhog day and it's annoying too because a lot of the conversation is is pretty transparently and cynically about buying time. Buying Even time. these negotiations that are going on on the hill, it's about waiting until the spotlight moves on and the circus moves on, and which it always uh, does. Which, which it, it always, always does. does. Yeah, they they just they just wait it out. Exactly, and it has worked. I mean, the the statistics about the you know number of school shootings since Sandy Hook are just devastating. And it is, I think, important for our leaders not to pretend like there is a silver bullet and a panacea. No, right. I cringe when I say silver bullet. I didn't mean to yeah, say yeah, that. You know. it sounds bad, but there is no, you know, there's no silver bullet. You're going to have shootings just because you can't prevent every mass shooting doesn't mean that you shouldn't try structurally to figure out. There's like so many piecemeal small things that could have big impact, like the number of these shooters who are buying assault rifles right after their 18th birthday on credit. You know, if, if you just raise the age to 21, the human brain doesn't stop developing until you're 26 or 27. There's these little things that incremental. Yeah. Incremental. And, and I think there is room for a compromise. It's just like, sure there is. you could come up with something where you did a couple things like that, and then you could throw more money at mental health and school security or whatever. There is room for a compromise. Well, and there is. And we've seen this at the state level. I mean, you know, even, you know, Republicans in Florida embraced a, a red flag law. This does happen. And see, this is the distinction between solutions and remedies that sometimes um, people say, well, unless your um, unless your proposal solves the problem, it's not worth doing. Well, no, I mean, there, there's you know, you, you can have a, a proposal that provides a partial remedy does not necessarily solve the problem, but makes it incrementally better. And you can't make the perfect the enemy of the good. And, and so a lot of the debates are, well, nothing we would do would have prevented this or nothing we would pass here. Well, look around the rest of the world. The rest of the yeah. world has figured out how to respond to these horrors. And I know I've said this several times, and I'm sorry to repeat myself, 
But I, I am a deep believer in American exceptionalism, except in this particular case, what is exceptional is America's, you know, uh, you know, the conviction in this country that there's nothing that we can do about all of this. That's not the position in New Zealand. That is not what Norway did. That is not the attitude of the English. Maybe they have, they are not perfect. Maybe they have not solved every single problem, but it's only in this country that we've decided, yeah, we're murdering children at this horrific rate. Not much we can do about that. Yeah. You see, I couldn't no. say it any better. I couldn't no, say it I, any better. I, I agree. I'm, I'm sitting here nodding. <laughs> okay, so I'm wrestling with with a really, really difficult, and I'm not sure how I feel about it. In fact, I, I do kind of know, and but in my newsletter, I, I raised the question, okay, so what does the AR-15 do to a child's body, and what if we saw the pictures? Michael Moore, who I'm not a fan of, by the way, um, you know, raised this question after Sandy Hook, uh, Jay Johnson, former Homeland Security Secretary, raised it, you know, saying if we had an Emmett Till moment and people saw them, would it change people's minds? And I look, I concede that's too much. It's just if people actually understood what an AR-15 does to the human body, what it does to a child's body, there's there's no way you would want to inflict that on the parents or the family or anything. But what does it take? I don't know. I mean, we, we've had these pictures in the past that have galvanized public opinion, have changed things. You know, Emmett Till lying in the open casket, of, you know, victim of, of racist violence. Uh, we all remember this picture of this naked Vietnamese girl running away from a napalm attack, right? Or, or the drowned three-year-old Syrian boy during the migrant crisis. And, you know, things happen, but I don't know what it would take because our powers of indifference and our collective amnesia and our, our willingness to rationalize is just so deep, deeply ingrained. Does anything, would anything make a difference? Uh, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm sorry to go on here, but yeah, we, I, I, we've become so numb. Yeah. Desensitized. Yes. I continue to be so amazed that, that as a country that we can even think of the possibility of these little kids being blown apart and in a week or so we just move on. And, and, and we're not haunted by it in a, in a way. And so that's why I sort of float the idea of, of the pictures and then pull back that that's, that's too much. We, we, can't, we can't handle it. But we would not be able to understand, for example, I'm sorry, you know, the Holocaust if we didn't have pictures. So does that what, is that what it takes? Does it take something like that? What do you the, think? The sad, re the sad reality is that it takes it happening to you or someone you love yeah, or someone you know directly. And, and it is interesting. I, I, I just spent the last five days in Texas, in Dallas, not, not Uvalde. And there are people that you talk to who internalize this, who feel like it happened to them, you know, mm -hmm. not them, but like, it's as if it happened to their kids' friends. And then you talk to a lot of people and it's, it's as if it happened in New Zealand. Yeah. Uh, you know, and but the people who they see their kids, in the faces of the the dead children who are smiling, I think they're already on board. Uh, but I, I do think that there's just a, a lot of people who, even though this is just a couple hundred miles away, feel like it's it's another world, and that it's just not something that feels close until it, it comes to their community. And we've seen that with a lot of different things, obviously. So I don't I don't know how to break through that, uh, but we've got to try. I think we do. If people are subscribers to Bulwark Plus, uh, in, in my newsletter this morning, I have some excerpts from from articles that describe what the AR-15 does to the human body, and it is graphic. So, you know, warning there. You know, the AR-15s were, were meant to explode human bodies in Sandy Hook and Uvalde. Those bodies belong uh, to children, and the accounts from 
emergency room doctors who treated victims from Parkland, you know, what they saw. And the distinction they make that handgun injuries are completely different than the AR-15. You know, most gunshot wounds, the bullet goes through, follows a certain path. And unless it hits a major organ, there's a good chance of survivability. It is completely different with the AR-15, which just blows these massive holes, you know, utterly devastating, you know, turning uh, organs into, you know, looking like an over, one doctor said, an overripe melon smashed by a sledgehammer. Um, nothing that can possibly be done. People need to understand this is fundamentally different. There is a fundamental difference between shooting someone with a handgun and an AR-15, which makes some of the rhetoric you hear. I saw one woman at a rally saying, well, somebody could have gone in there with a, with a baseball bat and killed as many kids. Um, no. Right. No. That's just not a reality. Okay, so enough of the guns. Let's take a deep breath. I want to talk to you about Joe Biden and where his presidency is at right now. Let's do that right after this. There's only two more weeks left for Genucel's summer clearance sale. Now save more than 60% off Genucel's most popular package at Genucel.com. Order today and get Genucel's dark spot corrector to visibly reduce those pesky dark spots for free. The Genucel dark spot corrector uses special peptides to visibly reduce the appearance of dark spots, age spots, and yes, even sunspots that summer leaves behind. Look, Genucel has been a family owned company. It's been operated that way since day one. Look, they know the times are tough for all of us, and that's why they haven't and will not raise prices on their world-class skincare products. This is why you're getting these offers now, and the results are real. Millions of amazing Americans are in love with Genucel products. Genucel guarantees results or your money back. And you can sign up for Genucel's best-in-class rewards program at checkout for an extra 10% off of your order and a complimentary gift set. So go to Genucel.com slash bulwark. That's Genucel.com slash bulwark and enter my promo bulwark for an extra 20% off at checkout. That's an extra 20% off. And right now, Every most popular package includes Genucel's immediate effects for results in as little as 12 hours. Go to Genucel.com slash Bulwark, Genucel.com slash Bulwark. Okay, we are back with James Homan, who is a columnist for The Washington Post. So Joe Biden having a lousy spring looks like it's going to be a tough summer after a terrible winter which followed a pretty ghastly fall. So you saw this story in NBC News yep. with, I think, four bylines. Yeah, Carol Lee, Peter Nicholas, Kristen Welker, uh, Kurtney Kuby, about the sort of a deep dive inside a White House adrift amid a rolling series of calamities and sinking approval ratings. The president's feeling lately he just can't catch a break, and that angst is rippling through his party. So it's bad, isn't it? It's really bad. What's <laughs> what's wrong? I mean, he came in with such high or reasonable expectations. What do you think? What what is wrong? I think a lot is going on. I think it it has not helped that we've still had to deal with COVID and the aftershocks of COVID. I do think that the big spending bill did contribute to inflation, and inflation is really bad, and it is hurting a lot of people. We have a story on the front page of. The Washington Post today about uh, a, a mom who's giving blood plasma twice a week 
to cover the rest of her costs. Yeah, you know, I think people are hurting, even though, you know, from the White House's perspective, unemployment is so low. There's so much money sloshing around the economy and there's been this era of easy credit and on and on and on. And I think they, the, the White House is incredibly frustrated. They also feel like it's going to be a bad election season and it can't get much worse, but the reality is it can always get worse. And I, I think that Biden has tried too hard to placate the far left. I really do. And I think that that has prevented him from focusing on the economy and focusing on the middle. I think that the the culture wars have, have hurt Biden more. I don't think that they've reacted well. You know, I think, again, that's pressure from Biden's left. But ultimately, Biden believed that he could lower the temperature and that he could convince congressional Republicans to work with him. And, uh, and, and he was able to get the infrastructure bill done. But then you look, you know, two weeks ago in West Virginia, the Republican Congressman David McKinley lost uh, to Alex Mooney. And it was largely the only contrast between these two congressmen who were thrown together because of, of redistricting was that uh, one voted for the infrastructure bill. And if, if voting for a bill to improve roads makes you lose in, in West Virginia. Like it's, it's not going to help anywhere. Ambitious Republican electeds see that. And so there, there's just no incentive to compromise or to work with the administration. And Biden's been, he's been defined and tagged by a lot of stuff that he's not necessarily responsible for. But the, the truth is crime is a huge, genuine problem. It's not moral panic to say so. And the administration has not responded aggressively enough. So people just feel unsafe. They feel like if there's wage increases, they deserved to earn more. But if there are price increases, that's something that's being done to them. And so it's it's just a, a cacophony of things. There's yeah. obviously also the just the history of the president always loses after his first yeah. two years in seats. So all of that combined, I mean, I think it's going to be a, a, a catastrophic midterm cycle. I also think Democrats are wrong to believe that, sadly, on guns, I don't think this issue is going to save any Democratic congressional seats. No, because it hasn't in the past. It, it hasn't in the past, and there's no indication that that's changed. And secondly, you know, Democrats think that they have these two things in the pipeline that are going to increase their base turnout. First is abortion. Yeah. I, I, I just don't believe that's going to lead to the kind of turnout that, that the White House thinks it is. Among. Why? Why it, do you- it, the energy isn't, it's, it's really not there. And I also think that the big problem for Democrats in a lot of the key states, especially the Nevada Senate race, some of the key house races in Texas, Latinos are actually pro-life by and large. Boy, and so no. I, I don't think this yeah. is going to motivate people the way that the White House thinks it does. And then the student loan for I was, was going to ask uh, this next. That's the second thing. <laughs> I, I just I'm morally and deeply, viscerally offended by student loan forgiveness. And I, I think that the White House believes this is going to prompt all these people to show up and vote for Democrats down the ballot. And I think it's going to backfire badly because oh, it just boy. feeds into this sense of unfairness. And, you know, I think the White House is completely wrong about how the politics of this are going to play out for them. OK, you're just you're hitting all my buttons here. Okay, <laughs> No, because I, I, I completely agree with you. And I have been preaching this for more than four years now because I have seen how it actually plays out on the ground, in swing states, in areas where Democrats need to do better. 
the, the, if Democrats in the White House think that student loan forgiveness is a political winner, they are absolutely delusional. Yep. This is a massive transfer of wealth that will be perceived by many taxpayers as fundamentally unfair, particularly those taxpayers who are struggling under other forms of debt that are not going to be forgiven. And this is going to, if anything, it will motivate voters to go to the polls and say they're giving away free stuff. I can't pay my bills. Now I have to pay for someone else's debt that they freely contracted. Also, the forgiveness of student loans apparently is not going to be linked to any sort of meaningful reform about the underlying problem of the cost of higher education or soaring tuition rates. If anything, it will actually fuel that. It will make it easier for institutions of higher education to charge more for degrees that are worth less. So here's another one of those cases where, okay, don't say we didn't warn you people. You know, exactly. so I, I, I just it, it makes my I mean, I worked all through college to not take on debt, uh, worked hard. You know, and you, you just think about the these people who have taken on student loans to become doctors and lawyers yes. and get their MBAs and their income trajectory. And all of a sudden they're getting these basically handouts from the government while a truck driver is, is you know, working 50 hours a week. And they're not getting anything. I, w- I want to break on my mortgage. <laughs> and it's just, it creates this terrible incentive yeah, to- You want to focus on a certain kind of debt. How about people who uh, ran up medical bills during the pandemic? But no. So I- I, get- I also think that this is like, I think Democrats are becoming, I think we're going through this once in a generation realignment. We're kind of seeing the tail end of the biggest political realignment since 1980. And Democrats, when you look at kind of trying to get the exemptions for the- salt deduction. They're becoming the party of the affluent and they're becoming the party of the college educated and the entitled and, yeah. Yeah. and the entitled and the woke. And that does not make a governing coalition. So as we face this threat to democracy, you have one party that is just marginalizing itself and becoming more and more dependent on voters on the coasts. And it, it just, this is, I just think about the town I grew up in, in Minnesota, Apple Valley, and just the, the people who probably voted for Joe Biden, maybe voted for Trump in 16, Biden in 20, who will just be so upset about How this. do they not get know, this? James, I'm sorry. <laughs> I agree with you so funny. How do they not get this? You look at these states like Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, what percentage of the population has college degrees? And yet you are asking all of those people who are experiencing high anxiety to pay for this transfer of wealth. And then, and I'm sorry, I know that Twitter is not real life. I get that. I understand that. But all of these folks saying, this is a betrayal, only $10,000. I have $50,000 in college debt. If the Democrats are only going to forgive $10,000, well, then I'm not going to vote for them. Suck it up, buttercup. I mean, seriously, where does Joe Biden think this groundswell is going to come from except for this small group of highly entitled college graduates who dominate college graduates who dominate the staffing and the inner workings of the Democratic Party. I've asked, I've, I've repeatedly yeah. asked yeah. people, uh, <laughs> and I've asked a lot of people in the White House this question, and essentially the answer is that this is the fault of Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock. What? Stacey Abrams has been browbeating the White House uh, on this and says that this is the only way she can win. 
that it, this is going to be a base turnout election. This isn't about persuading people in the middle. It's about getting the base to turn out. And the base isn't going to turn out if they don't do this. And that they have all sorts of stats about how you know, a lot of graduates oh. from HBCUs have all this data. And so there are a lot of people very close to the president who privately understand that this is a complete disaster for them. Uh, but the the president is being pulled really hard by these woke, leftists who are who believe who believe it's all about the base and that's just they just don't get it because they haven't spent time in you know in the wow counties or in apple valley minnesota well no i I, and i've told this story many times on the podcast so i apologize in in advance but again this goes back to 2016 and a elected official i'm not going to name him but he's somebody who pays attention to uh, public opinion very very closely And this was before the election. He said that he knew that Republicans were going to win big in rural Wisconsin when he went to a candidate forum and he heard all the Democrats talking about college loan forgiveness and free community college. And they're talking to a group of, you know, people from rural Wisconsin, blue collar workers, farmers who are basically looking at one another going, what the fuck is this? You know, I mean, our kids didn't go to college. I didn't go to college. I have to pay for this. And it was, it was not playing well. It turned into a big, huge net negative. And yet they continued to tell themselves that this was a winning issue. Uh, One of the reasons, in addition to Democrats becoming the party of the wealthy and the college educated, the fact that Democrats are going to drop Iowa as the lead state in the presidential voting process. And I have mixed feelings about Iowa and, you know, but what it's going to do is make the Democratic Party even less responsive to those rural voters that you're talking about. Democrats pick an early state without rural voters is like an important constituency. They're going to, I mean, obviously they're tone deaf and they're talking to rural voters about things that rural voters don't care about. But this is, it's just, it's a recipe for Democrats becoming further disconnected from these people by not having to engage with them, not having to campaign on the issues that they care about. And it, it just, it, it feels like this terrible, vicious cycle where Democrats are becoming more out of touch. Uh, and, and I think student debt just epitomizes, epitomizes the, the, the consequences of that in the, in a policy way. But it's, it's part of this deeper problem where Democrats kind of all the time talk about, oh, why can't we make inroads in rural areas? But then they do stuff like this that, uh, that, that just it shows people that Democrats aren't on their side. They don't share their values, all, all that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. oh, no, I'll be accused of beating up on Joe Biden, but I want to ask you about <laughs> this, too. I mean, from this NBC article, you know, that crises have piled up in ways that have at times made the Biden White House look flat footed. Record inflation, high gas prices, a rise in covid case numbers, and now a Texas school massacre. That is one more horrific reminder that he has been unable to get Congress to pass legislation to curb gun violence. But this this uh, this critique that the administration has been flat footed, that it has not anticipated the problem, that is slow to react. You know, and I think back at the real pivot moment of the presidency, um, the failure in Afghanistan, there does seem to be something about this administration that they are a step slow. Do you know what I mean? Is that unfair? It's not. It's arrogance. And it's not unfair. You know, Larry Summers is on our is a contributing columnist to the Post, and he was warning about, you know, the the inflation and saying the the American Rescue Plan was going to lead to inflation. And the, the, the White House was so dismissive of that. Uh, and he wasn't the only one. 
and and then you know they spent so long insisting inflation was transitory you know afghanistan was just such a foreseeable debacle and and in fact we know from our reporting that a lot of people in the administration were warning that it was going to be a debacle but the president wanted to pull out and so they didn't plan for the worst and then you know, in the case of Afghanistan, which is, I, I do think that was sort of the pivot point in this becoming a, 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 a I hesitate to use the word failed presidency because I do think it's too soon, but um, really a, a failed first year. Uh, the it's it just it, it Biden wanted to get out of Afghanistan, and the the president of Afghanistan, Ashraf Ghani, asked Biden not to uh, evacuate too quickly, and that uh, and he agreed and didn't plan. And that's what led to the debacle that we saw, uh, it, it, at Hamid Karzai airport. So I do think that there is this kind of one step behind, there's a, a reactiveness instead of a proactiveness to so much that's going on. We saw it, especially on COVID as it relates to testing, uh, where they were just sort of a one or two steps behind pretty consistently because they assumed everyone was going to willingly get vaccinated. Some of this stuff isn't entirely their fault, but there, this has been a consistent theme of the presidency. So this may seem a little bit gooier in terms of analysis, but it also just feels like Joe Biden is not a presence, that he has not used the bully pulpit in a way that that he has driven his successes. Like, for example, I, I think that, you know, on balance, he has done a lot of made a lot of good decisions on Ukraine slower than I would have liked, more tentative than I would have liked. I think there were things that, you know, that that were were in error. But you don't have the feel that this is a man who is dominating his own presidency. And maybe it that's unfair because of the contrast with Donald Trump who was in our face, in our heads constantly. So maybe that was inevitable. But um, you know, I, I, I agree it's too early to say that you're talking about a failed presidency, but it feels really a diminished presidency. And every time he speaks, I, I, I get the sense that even Democrats are kind of like watching him wincing with their teeth gritted, like what what now? What's going to happen now? It's underwhelming. He's a senator. He's, the, yeah. you know, the, the, okay, that's, he, he, that's and, you know, he isn't growing into the he does not clank when he walks. Yeah. And, you know, I've been in rooms with him. You know, when, when, you, when you were in a room with Donald Trump, yeah. you knew yeah. Donald Trump was in the room. Yeah. When you were in a room with Barack Obama or George W. Bush, you knew they were in the room. And, you know, Biden can walk into a room and he just doesn't dominate the room. And, that, and, and a lot of that's the performative element of politics. A lot of it is that he is a caretaker president. He is, in his, by his own description, a transitional figure. He has called himself a bridge between the last mm-hmm. generation and the next one. And, and I do believe he might have been the only person who could have beat Donald Trump in 2020. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the most important achievement of the Biden legacy is defeating Donald Trump. And, you know, you're absolutely right. You talk to prominent Democrats in Washington and they do wince when Biden talks, but then they also look and see Kamala Harris and they wince even more because they think she's wholly unequipped to be president. And so there is just a tremendous amount of anxiety and nervousness about uh, Biden just not filling these big shoes of the presidency. But the Democrats don't have a plan B for 2024, do they? They don't. (laughs) Everyone, not everyone, but the vast majority of Democrats you talk to, including women of color, know that Kamala Harris should not be their nominee in 2024. 
but they don't know who's going to be able, if Biden chooses not to run, rest it away from him. Who is the plan B? And frankly, when you start going down the list, you know, even among Democrats that are very likable, you know, like an Amy Klobuchar, it's just so hard to see someone like her or Pete Buttigieg resting the nomination away from Kamala Harris if Biden decides not to run. And it just, it feels like Donald Trump would so easily defeat Kamala Harris in a 2024 election. (laughs) I know we've already gone long here, but (laughs) give, give me your sense why you think she is unready. What is the problem with Kamala Harris? I think there's a lot of problems, uh, I, but I, I really do. I mean, that. I, I think that she's just so over her skis. I don't think that she's ever been successful in any job that she's had. And she has failed up, uh, you know, from from being district attorney to being California's attorney general to being in the U.S. Senate. People forget how hard it was for her to win her 2018 Senate race, uh, it, which shouldn't have been. But she just ran a bad campaign. And you know, she was in the Senate for two years. And, uh, you know, in the Senate, she was she got a lot of attention for asking tough questions and having fiery cross-examinations during hearings, but didn't achieve anything of substance. And, and then gets elevated to vice president and frankly has like not, I mean, she's just made so many gaffes. She doesn't understand foreign policy. She has repeatedly, you know, screwed up on the world stage. Uh, she's, she's just not very good at the job. And is she in Dan Quayle territory? I think she's just not growing into it. I mean, I, I think she's just, I think that might be a little mean to Dan Quayle. Ooh, see, then this is one of the things where, you know, I mean, I, I was not a supporter of hers, but it feels like the vice presidency has exposed these things that you're describing that that were, were, were not quite as manifest before she got there. There There is something about moving from one station to the, this big stage that, that really does strips away any of the illusions you have about whether um, somebody is ready or not. Absolutely. But yeah, so there is there is no plan B. So we save that, Cherry, for the end of the of the program. <laughs> James Holman, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. My pleasure, Charlie. Always fun to talk. Uh, James Holman is a columnist for The Washington Post, and you can read him there. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again.